Awesome. Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I have never heard that song before. I don't know if maybe I'm behind a little bit or not, but that's the first I've heard that song that the choir just sang, and what an awesome song, man. That was just just super. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Continuing a series we started last Sunday. We started uh, uh, the first Sunday of December, kind of taking all the way through Christmas, uh, through Christmas Day, uh, a message series entitled, I Believe. Now, let me just pause for a second and explain a little bit of what we're doing over Christmas weekend. It's a little bit different. Christmas is on a Sunday uh, this year, which is a little out of the ordinary. That doesn't happen every year, obviously. Uh, so this year, we're doing things a little bit differently. Uh, often, you'll hear us uh, promote the Christmas Eve services we're doing on Christmas Eve. We do two of those. We're still doing them. We're just not going to necessarily call them Christmas Eve services. We're just making that Christmas weekend. And so all three services we do that weekend will be identical. You can choose one to come to. Two will be on Christmas Eve, 4.30 and 5.30 as always. And then Christmas morning at 10.45, we'll have one service only on that day. And so all three services are identical. Again, Sunday's not going to be different than Christmas Eve. They're all going to be the same. You just pick which one you want to come to. But I do want to encourage you to bring people with you. We have a really good turnout on Christmas Eve, especially historically through the years. And a lot of folks from our community that we don't typically see through the course of, uh, of the year that come for Christmas Eve. It's like a special time for them. Uh, plan to come, bring people, invite people, this is a really good time to do that. The door is wide open. It's like a mini Easter almost in a sense where people oftentimes want to be in church on a Christmas Eve or through the course of a Christmas weekend. So you invite folks, bring people with you, and we're doing three services again that uh, that particular weekend, two on Saturday night and then one on Sunday morning, all right around uh, a half an hour or so. And so would love to see that weekend and again, plan to bring some folks with you. So we started a, ser- a series last Sunday and we're taking it all the way through Christmas morning. And the series, again, is is titled, I Believe. Now, when we kicked it off last Sunday, we kind of broke down a little bit of what what it means to actually believe, because we throw that word out a lot of times, you know, that I believe this or I believe that. And a lot of times it doesn't mean what we think it means. Sometimes when people say, I believe something, it's just a a wishful thinking. They're just hoping. And we we talked earlier about how uh, people may say, you know, I believe this is the year that our team's going to win it all. This is the year we're going to win the championship. And it it doesn't necessarily mean they see the future and that's going to happen. They're just wishful thinking. They're hoping. You know, they're saying, I hope this is the year that we win it all. You know, I believe, but I really don't know. I just sort of hope so. And and the the scary thing is that for some here today, probably a significant number, that's kind of the way you're viewing eternity, is that if someone were to ask you, do you think you're going to go to heaven one day, the answer would be, well, yeah, I believe I am, but the real meaning behind it is, I hope so. I don't have any real assurance necessarily. I, I, I just hope that when I get there, somehow, you know, my good outweighs my bad, and God says, come on in, but, but yeah, I believe I'm going, but I really don't know, and I really, really hope so, but it's kind of just wishful thinking. Listen, God doesn't let us in because we've been good enough, but there is a way for you to know absolutely certainly to where we, when you say, I believe, you can know it without a doubt, and that is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, and so we're kind of going to talk through that a little bit today as we look at the next, next message in this series, but a lot of people say, I believe, and they just, it's just wishful thinking. Other people, when they say, I believe, it's, it's, it's not not so much wishful thinking, it's just kind of like a personal preference. You know, they're saying, well, I believe this tastes better than that, or I believe this product is better than that product, but it's just their own preference, really. It's just kind of their opinion. It doesn't necessarily state any truth, but as we looked at last Sunday, really at the heart of what it means to believe, when we say, I believe something, it means that I hold this to be true, and I believe it to the extent to where that truth actually affects the way I live, and it affects the way that I speak, and it affects the way I think, it affects everything about my life. To really genuinely believe something, at the core of what that word means, 
It means that it is a response to what is true. And last Sunday, what we did was we started off this whole series kind of sifting through by looking at the kind of behind the scenes of that first Christmas, learning some principles that come along with it. Not just the facts, you know, of, a, of, of Jesus born, placed in a manger, the shepherds and the star and the wise men. Not just the facts. They're all true. But looking a little bit deeper and seeing what are some of the principles behind that first Christmas that we can say, I believe this to the extent to where it shapes the way I live my life. And so the very first message, we looked at a message entitled, I Believe God Sees the Forgotten. And and the message is on our website if you missed it last Sunday. But we kind of sifted through the simple truth that that first Christmas teaches us that God sees the people that are forgotten, which is really good news if you happen to be one of those. That if you are one who feels like, for whatever reason, you've been sort of pushed to the margins, you've been kind of moved to to the outskirts, right? That you feel like maybe God doesn't see you, God doesn't recognize where you are, people certainly don't understand what you face in your life. They don't know the, the, the struggles that you face. They don't know the hurt maybe that you've been through recently. You just sort of feel overlooked and forgotten. Man, Christmas drives home the fact that God sees the forgotten. In fact, the, the, the mere truth that he chose to come, when God came that first time, when he showed up that first Christmas, he could have come as, as a king, right? He could have come with a crown, and he could have come with a robe, and he could have come with a big throne. I mean, when you're God, you set the rules. He didn't have to come the way he did. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to send my son. He's going to be 30 years old when he gets there and he's going to have a crown on and a robe and and it's it's going to be evident to everybody that this is the king of the king of the world this is the the prince of uh, prince of peace the king of kings lord of lords but god didn't choose to do it that way he came as a vulnerable little baby i mean you talk about having a reason to overlook him most of the world did and they missed him they missed that this was god in the manger this was god who had come they totally overlooked him when he put the message to the shepherds, the shepherds were, uh, you talk about the ones that were most overlooked in the society that they lived in, probably the shepherds would have been those guys. They were uh, uh, not held in high esteem. They were considered as the lower, kind of the lower rung of the socioeconomic class. They weren't treated well. They weren't respected. And yet God said, no, it's going to be to these guys that I'm going to bring the message. They're going to be the ones that come and worship first. You know, and the ones that are overlooked are the ones I'm going to get the message to. And then, of course, there's Mary. Mary was the one that God chose, not because she had accomplished much, not because there was anything that stood out about her that gave her the right to carry and to give birth to the Messiah. But the Bible says when the angel came, the angel said, greetings, O favored one. And that that phrase simply means filled with grace. It was by God's grace that he chose Mary to give birth to the Messiah, not because of what she had done but only by God's grace. She had every reason to be overlooked. You could have put her in a line of all the other Hebrew teenage girls, probably, that was her age, and and there would have been nothing that stood out about her. There would have been every reason to overlook her, and yet God said, no, she's the one that I've selected by my grace to give birth to the Messiah. And in the same way that the Christmas story teaches us that God sees the overlooked, and he recognizes the overlooked, and he knows what's going on in in their lives, he does the same thing for us today. And there's every reason for us to have hope, and for us to have joy, and for us to have peace. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, if we know him, no matter how we struggle, God sees us, and he knows what we need, and he's a rescuer who comes for us to begin to deliver us. And so we looked at that all last Sunday as we started off this series, I believe that God sees the forgotten. And today we're going to add to that, picking up in Scripture in the book of Luke chapter 2 with a message simply entitled, I believe God orchestrates his plans. 
I believe, if you like to write down titles, here's your title, right? There's your little, little cue, your verbal cue. I believe, dot, 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 God orchestrates his plans. And by the way, let me say, God's plans always prevail. It's in the book of Luke chapter 2, I believe, that we begin to see that. But before we read that, let me just ask a question. Have you realized the simple truth that circumstances change? Circumstances change. For some of you, your circumstances have changed this year significantly. They've changed significantly, but they've also changed slowly. Maybe it's dawned on you where you kind of look back and you realize, you know, eh, six or eight months ago, you know, I was doing something different, but now, now I'm kind of in a whole different place in my life. Because sometimes circumstances change slowly. We look back, you know, just a matter of months and we realize that life is different than it was. And, and we don't, didn't really notice wherever the turn came, where the change came. It just sort of kind of evolved that way. You know, the, uh, circumstances changed and, and suddenly we look back and we're in a different place in our lives. But more often than not, our circumstances change quickly. And when our circumstances change quickly... It puts us in a very difficult place in life because it begins to rattle the cage just a bit. It causes us to really reflect on what it is that we truly believe. For some of you in this past year, you look at your life and you realize your family dynamic has changed. Maybe it's grown larger. Maybe you got married or you, got, you, know, you, you had a baby or you adopted a child or you adopted children. And you look at your life and you say, you know what, our, our, our life is different today. It's different in all the good ways, but our family has grown. You know, maybe you've taken in a family member. You know, someone who, who needed assistance, someone who couldn't care for themselves, and you open the doors of your home and you open your arms, and your family is a different structure. Those circumstances have changed this year. Maybe for some of you, your circumstances have changed to where your family has, has changed, not because it's grown, but because it's decreased. Maybe you've had someone who moved away, someone who was living under your roof, but they went off to college this year, and they're not living at home the way they used to. And Christmas is great because they're home or they're going to be coming home, but, but the dynamic is different now because your family has changed. Maybe uh, someone hasn't moved away. Maybe they passed away, you know, and you're, you're dealing still with, a, with a, the, just the tension of, of, of the family being different now ever since that person has stepped out into eternity. Maybe for you, the, the changes have been with your job, with your work, with your finances, Maybe your circumstances have changed where it's been a lot of blessings. I mean, there are a lot of good things that have come. I mean, you've had maybe, you know, a, a pay raise at work or you've gotten promoted or, you know, just some other blessing that's come. And that's been super, but it, it's still, it's a different circumstance. Others of you, it's been challenges that have come. It's been difficulties that have come. I mean, you have walked through the valley. You have walked through some dark, dark times, maybe in these recent months. And you look at your circumstances and you think, man, I, I don't know how to make heads or tails of this. I, I don't really know how to handle these circumstances. I, I don't know what it is that that I can do to help make these circumstances any better, and that may have even come to the place to where you're beginning to question God. Here's why it's so important. Here's why this message is an important one. Because if we don't understand and if we can't embrace the truth that God, and if we can't truly believe that God is orchestrating his plan despite the circumstances of our lives, here's what's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. If we don't embrace that truth that God is orchestrating his plan despite our circumstances and that his plan prevails, there's going to be a point where our circumstances are going to change so significantly that we're going to get at best disillusioned and discouraged. And at worst, we're going to get bitter and angry at God and we're going to walk out on him altogether because of our circumstances that changed. And so as we look at Luke chapter 2, here, here's what I want us to see. I'm going to kind of let the, you know, let, let the secret out. Here's what I want us to see. As we look at just seven verses in Luke chapter 2, 
I want us to see that on that first Christmas, the circumstances were not as, as easy as all the nativity scenes make them seem. Right, you've got a nativity scene, I'm sure, in your home, and that nativity scene is well placed, and you've got just the mantle, just the table. Maybe you got some snow, right? And you put it around there, and you've got you know the baby Jesus in the manger, and he's so comfortable, you know. And the the sheep are there, and maybe there's a camel there. None of them are making any noise, and you don't smell them, right? <laughs> it's just perfect. I mean, there's like angels, whoo, you know, up above the the little thing there, and and it's just a star. You know, it's just it's just perfect. It's just perfect. You know what? The first Christmas was not the way you may think it was. It didn't smell that good, I'm sure, right? Based on where they were. And it was not without difficulties. And as we'll see here, again, if we don't look just at the facts, but if we go a little beneath the surface, if we just peel the curtain back a little bit and walk backstage, we're going to see that there were some very, very difficult circumstances. There were some significant moving parts on that first Christmas, that prove to us the truth, that God orchestrates his plan. His plans always prevail despite our circumstances. And so let's go ahead and jump in. The setting here is that Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem just before Jesus will be born. And so let's see what Luke says in Luke chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. By the way, let me say before I read this that Luke was one who had done much research. Chapter 1 tells us this. And uh, he put together a, a, a very well-documented work that you hold in your lap that help us to see the facts behind that first Christmas. Every bit of it we can trust. The Holy Spirit would inspire him and direct him. Every bit of this we can trust, not only the facts behind the story, but also the uh, principles we learn as well. So let's jump in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Luke writes, and he says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I told you that Luke was very precise. He's given us names. He's given us positions. I mean, he's covered all the details. Verse 3, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. There's a key name there that's mentioned that we need to take note of, and you see it highlighted. The name is Caesar Augustus. Part of that name is actually a title. Caesar Augustus would be the Roman emperor that was in charge, basically, of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth. Caesar Augustus would reign from the year 31 BC up until the year AD 14. So he would have a lengthy reign. What's that? 45 years roughly, give or take. And so Caesar Augustus would be the one, at least in the historical sense, who would be kind of in charge of the Roman Empire during the birth of Jesus. Caesar Augustus was an interesting person. He was a great leader in many ways. Uh, many of you maybe from your old uh, history classes, you remember that he, uh, it was uh, something called the Pax Romana that was in place in the Roman Empire during Caesar Augustus's reign, the Roman peace. There was also a time of great prosperity that the Roman kingdom experienced under Caesar Augustus's rule. There, was, uh, there were many many things to enjoy about the Roman Empire if you were a Roman citizen. However, for the Jews, it was not so easy. Caesar Augustus would issue what we could call an imperial edict. It was a decree with all the authority that he carried as the, as the leader of the Roman Empire. And in this decree, this, this edict, he would order a census to be taken. Now, it wasn't the only census that he would order, but in this particular case, he ordered for a census to be taken. It was not for military purposes. They weren't going to do the census and then like draft people into you know, the Roman military. It wasn't for, ta- for, for military reasons. The census was for taxation purposes. It was to levy taxes on all those who lived within the Roman Empire, Jews included 
included. Now, whenever these censuses would be, what is it, censuses or censi? I don't know. Whenever a multiple census would be carried out, uh, how about that? Uh, the, the, The Jews would just quiver. They would just cringe at this. You may remember Jesus' ministry, right? There's this setting that the Gospels tell us about where uh, the Pharisees, they try to trick Jesus. And, and these uh, Jewish Pharisees, they say to him, so tell us, Jesus, is it lawful or, or is it proper for us to pay taxes to Caesar or is it not? Yeah, the Jews hated the idea of rendering taxes to Caesar. You remember Jesus' response, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. But that was just a reflection that the Jews did not appreciate nor enjoy always living within the Roman Empire. And a large reason for that was because the Romans believed their emperor to be God. They ascribed to their emperor's deity. And so Caesar Augustus, during the time of Jesus' birth, would be operating as the leader of the entire Roman Empire an empire in which the Jews would have operated and navigated, and he would have believed himself to be deity, and everyone else would have as well. As the story begins to unfold, we pick up in verse 4, and let's see what happens next. So it says that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. So Joseph and Mary both were from the line of David, actually. The Bible in verse 4 says that they would travel from Nazareth south to Bethlehem, a journey of roughly, probably around 90 miles by the time they made it from point A to point B. It would not have been an easy journey, as you can imagine. They didn't have the city bus system. They didn't have MARTA, you know, like they do in Atlanta. They didn't have any other, you know, uh, means that would make it a little bit easier. I mean, this would have been a very difficult journey. Verse 5 even adds to it. It says, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So they're traveling to Bethlehem, the kind of the city of birth for Joseph. And as they make this 90-mile journey, as they travel there, Mary is now carrying the Messiah. The Holy Spirit has enabled her to conceive. She's been conceived has conceived this child by the Holy Spirit. She's about to give birth to the Messiah. And this is a 90-mile journey now that they're making to travel from Nazareth to Joseph's birthplace in the city of Bethlehem. Move on to verse 6, the next passage. So it says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. That's an interesting phrase. The days were completed for her to give birth. If you pause for just a moment right there, you begin to survey the landscape, you see that this was not really an easy setting. I mean, this census could not have been ordered at a worse time, right? This is like being eight months pregnant and finding out that you're being audited by the IRS, right? This is not good timing, okay? So, so the, the census is not good timing for Mary and Joe. It didn't really fit, you know, probably, I'm sure, their social calendar. It didn't fit, you know, in any way that would have made this easier. It was a long journey. It was not an easy journey. They probably traveled with a caravan, you know, of others that were traveling in that direction to register for the census. They they make this long trip. Everything seems to be difficult every stage of the way. It, It is more and more difficult as they go. They finally arrive, ultimately, as we see, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, which is a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. And they finally get there, right? And, and there's no room in the inn. Now, that's probably not like all the Christmas dramas that you've seen. You know, there's no mention of an innkeeper in the scriptures anywhere, uh, much less the poor innkeeper that's in every uh, elementary school drama, you know, in every church drama. You know, he's like, no room. 
gloom. He's always in a bad mood, right? He's always grumpy. If you ever played the innkeeper uh, in a play, <clears throat> there's probably a reason for that. So uh, we'll just leave it at that. So uh, just kidding. And so they get to the end. I mean, it, this is all difficult. Bad timing, long trip. She's about to deliver a baby, for goodness sakes. They get to the, to the end. There's no room in the end. Why is that? Probably because, again, a lot of travelers coming into, Jerusalem, or into Bethlehem to register, right, because of Caesar Augustus's uh, uh, decree, because of the census. I mean, everything is just difficult. And yet, Paul tells us, you know, Paul actually has a little say in, the, in the, the Christmas story as well, believe it or not, because Paul tells us in Galatians, look at what he says here in the book of Galatians chapter 4, he says, when the fullness of time came, in other words, Paul says, when it was the perfect time. Now, does this sound like the perfect time from a, from a human perspective? No. But from God's perspective, he says, when the fullness of the time came, when it was the perfect timing, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Every circumstance virtually, it's not like the manger scenes on your mantle, every circumstance seemed to be an uphill climb. Everything seemed to be difficult, and yet God looks down from heaven, and he says, that is the perfect time. And it's interesting that on top of all of those circumstances, God puts the whole thing in motion through a government leader, Caesar Augustus, who thought he was God, who issued a decree that got everything kick-started. And yet we come sometimes in the midst of our circumstances that are always so quickly changing. Sometimes it can be always so difficult to manage and to navigate. We go through those circumstances and we throw up our hands and we begin to say, oh, God must have just lost sight of me. Oh, God couldn't even fix this mess that I'm in. Oh, God can never repair the hurt that I feel. God can never change these circumstances in my life. And yet the very first Christmas, whenever he chose to come in the first place, reminds us that God is always in control. He, was all, he is always sovereign. He is always in authority. He never steps off his throne. His ways are always providentially directed, meaning he is always pulling the strings so that he can accomplish his overarching purpose for our lives, that we might be better off and he might ultimately get the glory for it. And he has always, always done this. How many of you are chess players? You like to play chess? Any of you? All right. The first service, I felt like a, like a crazy person. All right, so how many of you played chess? There were like two hands that went up. I felt like the biggest nerd in the whole wide world. So we got more nerds here amongst us that I can hang out with. So you're chess players. All right, I'm not much of a chess player. I, I like to play, but I'm not any good at it. So I'm your man if you want to play chess sometime. Uh, when I went to the Philippines, one of the trips that I went, they loved to play chess there, and they were, they were really, really good at it. And they will beat you in two different languages. I mean, they, they will tell you about it. They're really good at playing chess, and so... So I kind of got, you know, a little bit hooked there when I went and, and uh, kind of off and on at times I'll pick it up again. But uh, so I've got this app on my phone and uh, it's a chess app. <laughs> doesn't help my nerd factor, I guess. So I got this chess app and it's the free version. So I guess that helps. And, uh, and so you, I can play my phone and my phone whips me every single time I play, it seems like. So it's got all these different settings and uh, I'm still a beginner. Um, now, I haven't moved up to, I think it's called novice beginner. How bad is this? I mean, there's a novice beginner. I can't even attempt. 
attain that position, you know, in the, in the chess playing world. But there are times when I'll play my phone and, uh, and I'll just bump it up, you know, to like, you know, some high skilled level and it beats me faster. I mean, I can put something in the microwave and the chess game be over and it's still heating up, you know, it just beats me so, so fast. But here's the amazing thing is that, you know, as I'm playing chess, I don't know if you've all played it at least probably a little bit. So, so you're moving all these pieces and you're thinking, you know what? I got them. I got my opponent. You know, they're boxed in. I've just laid this thing out perfectly. And then it's like, checkmate, you know, you're done, you know, and I'm beat. And what happens is, is that there are things on the table that I can't see happening. We're playing with the same pieces on the same board, with the same boundaries, the same perimeter, the same squares. And yet there is something going on from the other side by my opponent that I can't see, that I can't fathom, that I can't even begin to understand. And it wins every single time. Now, here's the thing. You and I are up against an enemy who is our opponent, and his name is Satan. The Bible makes it very clear that he is real, and he is working his schemes, and he is trying to accomplish his work to, uh, to steal, kill, and destroy, just like Jesus said when he nailed him in John 10.10. 10. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Here's what we have to understand. Regardless of the circumstances that change in our lives, even regardless of our enemy, we have a God that if we know him through a relationship with Christ, who is for us and not against us, and he sees everything. He is always in control, always has been, always will be. Even from the cross, Jesus was calling the shots. He was fulfilling prophecy. And he is going to work even through the most difficult of circumstances in our lives. He is moving the pieces. He is orchestrating his plan and he is accomplishing his will. If we just let him do that, that is a really good place to say, that's right, brother. And for those of you that are down and out and struggling and hurting and your family is not the way it used to be, and the person that you were once with is not a part of the picture anymore, and you didn't ask for the difficulties that you face, and you are struggling, and you're trying to claw and, and, and scratch and make your way through this. Listen, there is a God who sees you, and there is a God who loves you, there is a God who knows you if you have a relationship with him through Christ, and he is at work. And if I can't tell you how to fix it, I can tell you this, that he is at work and he will not leave you on a curb and come pick you up later when it's time to go to heaven. He will walk with you through the valley. David said it a thousand years before Jesus even came. He is always orchestrating his plan in our lives despite the circumstances that we face. In fact, we can summarize it this way as a simple principle. You can jot this down. Our circumstances are not obstacles but rather tools to God. You see, when circumstances change, and I'm not making light of the difficulties that we sometimes go through, when our circumstances change, those don't become obstacles. You know what? I could have, I could have had joy if this hadn't happened in my life. You know, God's not up there in heaven saying, you know what, you're exactly right. If that hadn't happened, I could have gave you joy. You know, God had not operate that way. God says, what do you mean? My joy is not dependent on your circumstances. My, my joy is dependent on the fact you've got a relationship with the God who created you. And there's going to be a day for a billion years plus into infinity that you're going to realize the victory that came to you when you gave your life to Christ. Our circumstances are never going to be easy. But our joy is not dependent on that. Our joy is dependent on a God who overarches our circumstances and who doesn't see them as obstacles but as tools in our lives. Do you realize that Jesus was threatened long before he was ever born? A lot of times we don't pause to think about how much the Messiah, Jesus, was threatened before he even showed up that first Christmas. 
Back in the book of Genesis, for example, follow me with this. Pay close attention. In the book of Genesis, the third chapter into that book, mankind sins, right? Adam and Eve make a choice to rebel against God. They sin. Listen. They sin against God. God begins to hand out discipline to Adam and Eve, judgment to the serpent, judgment to Satan, to the enemy. He says to the enemy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I don't have this on a slide, but let me, just, let me just read it to get it right. God says to the enemy, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. This is a reference to the Messiah. He shall bruise you, or, or he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Some translations say he will crush you. You will bruise him, God says to the enemy, you will, you will bruise him on the heel, that's a reference to the cross, but he will crush you, that's a reference to the resurrection. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, it's the first gospel, three chapters into the Bible. How interesting it is when the enemy learns there, <laughs> because the devil is not all-knowing, how interesting it is that when the devil learns there that the Messiah would come born of a woman... That in the very next chapter, we find in Genesis 4, the second generation of mankind, that there is a murder that takes place. Isn't that ironic? It's as though the enemy said, well, if the Messiah is coming through a woman, then I need to wipe out all the people. I need to eliminate the line. You move through Scripture and you find prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Interesting, isn't it, that on two separate occasions, King Saul would try to pin David to the wall with a spear. David would spend a significant part of his life on the run from Saul who wanted to kill him. You kill David, you eliminate the line from the very beginning. You move through the Old Testament, or move, move elsewhere in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 11, you find that the Messianic line was actually down to, to one person. His name was Joash. The royal family had been eliminated by murder And Joash, a little baby, would be rescued, would be hidden for six years. He would serve as the youngest king that they would ever have serve over them. And yet as the kingdom, the messianic line came down to one person, God would intervene. And God would preserve the line. Why would he do that? Even when Jesus would be born, it would be Herod who would decide to kill all the children ages two years and under. Why would he do that? To try to wipe out the line, to try to eliminate the Messiah, to eliminate our salvation. And yet God every single time preserved. God oversaw. God orchestrated. God carried out and his plan could not be thwarted. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. No Messiah equals no salvation. No salvation equals eternal damnation and destruction. Payment for our sins. And yet God orchestrated the circumstances to provide for us in miraculous fashion a way to be saved. So let me ask you this question. If you really believe that God orchestrates our circumstances, if you really, really believe it, then what do we do next? Four quick things and I'm done. You can jot them down. If we really believe that God orchestrates our circumstances, that his plan cannot be thwarted, then the first thing we do is that we need to surrender not only our circumstances but ourselves to him. Maybe for some of you today, the prayer that you need to pray is, God, I give you this circumstance. I give you this difficulty. I give you this challenge. I surrender it to you. I can't fix it, but I know that you can, and I surrender it to you, and I trust that you're at work. You're at work. For others of you, the issue is not getting your circumstances addressed. 
It's surrendering your life to Jesus to begin with. It's making certain that you know that you've given your life to Jesus, admitting your sin, asking his forgiveness, and inviting him to take over. As we surrender ourselves and as we surrender our circumstances to him, the second thing we do is that we need to work with him, not against him. We don't need to get angry at God. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. He lets this world run its course at times, but he's still in control. Hard times still come. He's still in control. We need to work with him, not against him. Why? Because he's for us and not against us. Number three, we need to trust him. He sees the big picture in ways that we can't. We only see one rail car. Sometimes it's filled with a lot of junk. God sees the whole train. He sees it from beginning to end. He knows what he's doing. And then we need to follow his lead. Wherever he leads, as the old song says, we go. We follow. So what circumstances change for you? What circumstance in your life is difficult? What is it for you today that has caused you to think, you know what, I don't know if God even sees me. I don't know if God even knows what's on my, what's going on in my life. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to make it through this difficulty. I, I don't know how good can ever come out of this time in my life. What is it that makes you think that way? And are you willing this morning to say, you know what? No, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to believe that he works his plan for good. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to work with him and follow wherever he leads. And if you haven't started with Jesus first, no better time now than to give your life to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the facts of Christmas, but thank you for the truths that we read from behind the scenes. And God, we thank you that you do see the forgotten. And Lord, we thank you that as well, that you always work your plan. You work your plan, it can't be thwarted. And Lord, as we trust you and follow you, we'll experience the joy that comes with that. So whatever decisions we need to make today, God, help us to get them right. And we thank you for what you'll do. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand together this morning as we sing our song of invitation.